Come with me to Indiana. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Today's show is Moments of Betterment, the example of Eugene Victor Debs. To the little town of Terre Haute. Our opening song is The Ballad of Eugene Debs by Joe Glazer. There Eugene Victor Debs was born. And before that boy could stand, he told the world and his mom, Palm, gonna be railroad man. On March 30 this year, WFHB partnered with several local businesses, the Ryder Magazine and Film Series, the Burroughs Century, the Debs Foundation, and Indiana University to bring Paul Buell to Bloomington to talk about Eugene Debs, the necessity of utopian thinking, and Buell's new graphic biography of Debs, drawn by Noah Van Sciver, and published by Verso. What better way to demonstrate to you the value proposition of community radio? Not only do we support the community's learning, we share that with the greater listening public, an audience that can be found across the globe. WFHB is volunteer-powered and listener-funded, which means we exist at your pleasure. Take the time to support us with your attention and your money. The easiest way to do this is going online to donate securely at WFHB.org and clicking on the red Donate button on the right side of your screen. You can't miss it. Dynamic and beloved American radical, labor leader, and socialist Eugene Victor Debs led the Socialist Party to federal and state office across the United States by the 1920s. Imprisoned for speaking out against World War I, Debs ran for president from prison on the Socialist Party ticket, receiving over one million votes. Debs' life is a story of labor battles in industrializing America, of a fighting socialist politics grown directly out of the Midwest heartland, and of a distinctly American vision of socialism. Today, Interchange brings you selections from our March 30th event so you can partake in a chapter of the nation's history that is at once specific to Indiana, Terre Haute to be precise, but so much larger than the Hoosier State. As much as this was a Debs event, it was also a Paul Buell event. Paul Buell is one of the foremost historians of American radicalism and the American left, having authored or edited over 30 books, including works such as Images of American Radicalism, Marxism in the United States, the Encyclopedia of the American Left, and Radical Hollywood. He's also the editor of over a dozen comic art books that are wide-ranging yet consistent in socialist and radical perspective. There are books on Jesus, The Beats, Bohemians, The Wobblies, Rosa Luxemburg, Che Guevara, the Irish martyr James Conley, Johnny Appleseed, and most recently, Herbert Marcuse. Buell founded the SDS journal Radical America, and the archive Oral History of the American Left. Our program features an in-studio interview with Buell, Deb's words brought to life by four local writers, and end with Buell talking to an audience about the socialist utopianism of Debs, finding form in the counterculture of the 1960s and breathing life into a new generation willing to march against capitalism and climate disruption. We'll begin with Paul Buell in our WFHB studios talking with Alex Lichtenstein about the role of comics in conveying complex historical events and lives to young readers. Alex Lichtenstein is a professor of history at Indiana University and the editor of the American Historical Review. And now, Moments of Betterment, the example of Eugene Victor Debs on Interchange on WFHB. Now tell me, Eugene Victor Debs, what's your philosophy? I'll tell you my philosophy, it's simple as can be. 
Wherever there's a cry for justice, that's where I will be. As long as there's a soul in prison, I, I cannot be free. Paul, I would say that when it comes to graphic history, uh, comic books, as it were, as a form of narrative for the historical uh, audience, you were an early adapter. So could you talk a bit about why you think comic books uh, have been a good way to promote historical thinking or to uh, reach a wider audience of people who might be interested in history? When asked that question in a friendly or hostile way, uh, I invariably say that when I was teaching at Brown University in the early, middle 1990s, I observed that my students, very well-educated, great backgrounds, read fewer pages each year. And there was nothing I could do to prevent them from reading fewer pages each year. It was a uniform response. And so you ask yourself, and I'm certainly not the only person who asked himself and the faculty, what the heck do I do now? And mostly professors wring their hands about it. Uh, and uh, others then they try to think of some way to adapt. And all I really can say about myself is that I learned with looking at the paperback reprints of Mad Comics, this would be in the middle 1950s when I'm 11, 12 years old, that it, the startling critique in those Mad Comics of American advertising, television, uh, other comic strips in the, the mainstream uh, comic books and and in the newspapers and a wide range of things. It was a savage attack on the consumer society of the 1950s. This was all, Mad, Mad Magazine. This is a precursor to Mad yes. Magazine, Mad Comics, which appeared 1952 to 55. Mad Magazine was, was a successful attempt to escape what, it, in effect, was a an act against uh, the comic book industry, the, the the witch hunt that was carried on and resulted in some comic book burnings in Wisconsin and elsewhere. The way Mad Magazine got around that uh, imposition of a comics code was by changing from a color comic book to a slick black and white magazine. Hmm. Thus, it could not be controlled uh, at kiosks and in stores by the comic book code. Uh, but the precursor, Mad, Mad Comics, was much more intense and aimed toward a rather older audience than, than Mad Magazine and uh, was the height of EC artists' glory. They also had wonderful science fiction comics about what, hap what do we do after a nuclear war. They had great war comics, which were actually anti-war, the story of civilians caught in the middle in Korea. And all kinds of splendid things which came to a crashing halt in 1955. So you, you realized that this had influenced your reading habits perhaps uh, in your younger days and you thought perhaps this would be a way of reaching uh, students in the 1990s. Well, that's right. I, I later co-authored a biography of Harvey Kurtzman, really the, a great, great figure in, in uh, the world of satire. And it struck me uh, that uh, I could try this out as books. Now – it's also true that I published a couple of picture books, including a book of labor murals by a guy named Mike Alowitz uh, and a, a curious album-looking book called Images of American Radicalism. But I hadn't tried to do comics. 
until the centenary of the industrial workers of the world, the IWW was approaching in 2005. So it's 2002 or 2003, and someone came to me and said, I have some money for the artists, uh, some anyway, but you need to package it, put it all together. And uh, and I said, that I can do that in Verso Books, which would publish my biography of C.L.R. James and a couple other books. We'll be eager to do this, and they were eager to do it. And it was uh, uh, quite a wonderful development we created a poster show, took it around to various parts of the country. People turned out to sing for a night, and sometimes it even included young people. So why a graphic biography of Eugene V. Debs? What drew you to him as a character, and what did you see as a possibility for this form in order to tell his story? Well, I, I must say that especially after Harvey Picar's untimely death, struggling to find a way to get institutional support, for uh, the art and uh, p related publicity led me to first towards the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung Institute to sponsor a Rosa Luxemburg comic called Red Rosa, which was very successful uh, with 12 international editions. Uh, and then I approached Democratic Socialists of America, which I happen to be a member of, uh, probably around the time of the 2015 uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign in Madison, 10,000 people showed up. I was one of them. And the enthusiasm inspired a, an interest in socialism, an interest in socialist history that I hadn't seen for a very long time, uh, perhaps perhaps not even in the later 60s when we didn't use the word socialism very often. Right. Uh, and that gave me an old, old idea as a Midwesterner from downstate Illinois and as a scholar of what I was would have always called Debsian socialism, which is sort of a, a very vague term, but is the the base support of uh, of Eugene Debs as a political figure and also as a great heroic figure, uh, especially before 1920. But among the many old timers who I interviewed when I founded the Oral History of the American Left uh, program at New York University, uh, Debs stands up uh, bigger than any figure that they could remember. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show highlights a recent Eugene V. Debs event with historian and author Paul Buell that coincided with the beginning of WFHB's Spring Fund Drive, the time of year when we turn to you for financial support. WFHB is volunteer-powered and listener-funded, which means we exist at your pleasure. Take the time to support us with your attention and money. The easiest way to do this is by going online to donate securely at WFHB.org and clicking on the red Donate button on the right side of the screen. Please consider making your donation a recurring monthly amount, and if you pledge $10 a month in support of Interchange, we can send you one of several books by Paul Buell, published by Verso. Supply is limited. Thank you for your commitment to supporting the important work of community radio. Let's return to Alex Lichtenstein's interview with historian of the radical left in the United States, Paul Buell. So 
So uh, in doing this book, what did you find challenging about it? For example, you mentioned to me you're about to come out with a book, a, a comic book, uh, about Herbert Marcuse. Now, of course, that deals largely with ideas, which aren't always so easy to draw. With Debs, how did you – did you find any challenges with using this particular form, the graphic history, to tell the story of Debs? I would have to say it probably is the – complexity of Debs's own life in this sense, especially as we're speaking only 60 miles from Terre Haute, Debs's uh, birthplace in early years, and that is the degree to which, especially uh, up to, to 1900 and his first campaign, his story is deeply imbued with 19th century Americana, both the older uh, reform movements, abolitionism, woman suffrage, uh, populism, and and so on. And the values uh, represented in a way as much by Edward Bellamy looking backward, the famous utopian novel, as by anything we could describe as the modern class struggle. Also, the feeling that the aristocrat of labor was losing out and the dignity that had been created around that part of the labor movement was was slipping away. To put that together with the story of the IWW, Debs's connection to the new immigrants, and uh, and then uh, from Pullman in 1894 to federal prosecution in, in 1917 or 1919 Act, on, yes. under the Espionage Act. That's right. Did he, as critics say, throw himself into becoming a martyr? Uh, what did it mean for someone to get uh, behind bars to get nearly a million votes in in 1920, and all those sorts of questions. Debs is so big that in a way he's too big for a uh, hundred and some pages, and yet we were tasked to do this, and tasked further to carry the story on through Norman Thomas, the next Mister Socialism, and Michael Harrington, the final. Mr. Socialism, as far as we know, unless the politician known as AOC may become Mr. Socialism of the 2020s, which could be. Uh, We didn't quite get there because of the the deadline. But that sense that in spite of all the vast differences, there is a a continuity in socialist ideas. And a socialist tradition. Now, of course, as you know, Ray Ginger and Nick Salvatore have wrestled with this in four or 500 pages of Mm. biography. So uh, what was it about illustration? How visually could this allow you to do some shortcuts in telling this very complex story, which, as you suggest, really bridges, uh, you know, the Terre Haute of the pre-Civil War era through the Bolshevik Revolution and beyond. Um, the, did illustrations help you create a narrative that could be shorter and more I, I think the – yeah, the, the task is always to deep dive into the persona and find some element that when visually presented – I think Gene Debs' bald head is sort of a uh-huh. help here – uh, uh, creates a visual sense for the reader, notably for the young reader, of how Debs was formed and formed himself at an early, fairly early age, and then carries that forward through visual presentations and also his incredible rhetoric, but further the personalities and movements that were around him, uh, a real notable one being the 
woman suffragists in the 19th century, Susan B. Anthony, who we brought through the streets of, of Terre Haute to speak, to uh, Margaret Sanger, who, when she proposed in a socialist paper uh, that birth control materials be made available to women and was instantly arrested, Debs hesitated not a moment in declaring that women must have birth control available to them. And do you illustrate those two Indeed. scenes in the narrative? Indeed, uh, because, you know, they're, uh, uh, my first book with Mary Jo Buell was uh, A Concise History of Women's Suffrage. And so it's a subject that uh, is dear to me. My great aunts in Illinois went to suffrage events in the 1910s. So uh, that that particular element of, of uh, women's history is, is, is part of my history. Let's put it that way. It's time for a break. This is Chicago by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, off of the live album Four-Way Street, recorded in 1970. When Interchange returns, we'll continue our Debs celebration with four performances of the writings of the Indiana-born socialist giant, beginning with a reading from What's the Matter with Chicago, performed by Michael Glab. In a land that's known as freedom, how can such a thing be fair? Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young with Chicago, We Can Change the World, performed live in June of 1970. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our celebration of Eugene Debs continues with Michael Glab reading from What's the Matter with Chicago? The answer? Capitalism. Debs strikes a familiar dystopian theme here in which the city detaches people from the well-being found by living closer to the earth, the grass, the trees. We can What's the matter with Chicago? 
For some days, William E. Curtis, the far-famed correspondent of the Chicago Record-Herald, has been pressing the above inquiry upon representative people of all classes with a view to throwing all possible light on this vexed subject. The inquiry is in such general terms and takes such wide scope that anything like a comprehensive answer would fill a book without exhausting the subject, while a review of the interviews would embrace the whole gamut of absurdity and folly and produce a library of comedy and tragedy. It is from the wage worker's point of view that I shall attempt an answer to the question propounded by Mr. Curtis. And in dealing with the subject, I shall be as candid as may be expected from a socialist agitator. The question is opportune at this season when the frost is on the pumpkin and the ballot is soon to decide to what extent the people really know what is the matter with Chicago. First of all, Chicago is the product of modern capitalism and, like all other great commercial centers, is unfit for human habitation. The Illinois Central Railroad Company selected the site upon which the city is built, and this consisted of a vast miasmatic swamp far better suited to the mosquito culture than for human beings. From the day the site was chosen, and of course in the interest of all by the said railway company, everything that entered into the building of the town and the development of the city was determined purely from profit considerations and without the remotest concern for the health and comfort of human beings who were to live there, especially those who had to do all the labor and produce all the wealth. As a rule, hogs are only raised where they have good health and grow fat. Any old place will do for human beings. At this very hour, typhoid fever and diphtheria are epidemic in Chicago, and the doctors agree that these ravages are due to the microbes and germs generated in the cash basins and sewers which fester and exhale their foul and fetid breath upon the vast swarms of human beings caught and fettered here. Thousands upon thousands of Chicago's population have been poisoned to death by the impure water and foul atmosphere of this undrainable swamp. Notwithstanding the doctored mortuary tables by which it is proven to the prospective investors that it's the healthiest city on earth. And thousands more will commit suicide in the same way. But to compensate for it all, Chicago has the prize location for money-making, immense advantage of profit-mongering. And what are human beings compared to money? During recent years, Chicago has expended millions to lift herself out of her native swamp. But the sewage floats back to report the dismal failure of the attempt. And every germ-laden breeze confirms the report. That is one thing that is the matter with Chicago. It never was intended that human beings should live there. A thousand sites infinitely preferable for a city could have been found in close proximity, but they lacked the commercial advantages of such commanding importance in this capitalist system. And now they wonder, what is the matter with Chicago? Look at some of her filthy streets in the heart of the city, chronically torn up. The sunlight obscured, the air polluted, the water contaminated, every fountain and stream designed to bless the race poisoned at its source. And you need no wonder what ails Chicago, nor will you escape the conclusion that the case is chronic and that the present city will never recover from this fatal malady.
What is true of Chicago physically is emphasized in her social, moral, and spiritual aspects. And this applies to every commercial metropolis in the civilized world. From any rational point of view, they are all dismal failures. There's no reason under the sun, aside from the profit considerations of the capitalist system, why two million humans should be stacked up in layers and heaps until they jar the clouds while millions of acres of virgin soil are totally uninhabited. The very contemplation of this spectacle gives rise to serious doubt as to the sanity of the human race. Such a vast population in such a limited area cannot feed itself, has not room to move, and cannot keep clean. The deadly virus of capitalism is surging through all the veins of this young mistress of trade, and the eruptions are found all over the body, social and political. And that's what's the matter with Chicago. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show highlights a recent Eugene B. Debs event with historian and author Paul Buell that coincided with the beginning of WFHB's Spring Fund Drive, the time of year when we turn to you for financial support. WFHB is volunteer-powered and listener-funded, which means we exist at your pleasure. Take the time to support us with your attention and money. The easiest way to do this is by going online to donate securely at WFHB.org and clicking on the red Donate button on the right side of the screen. Please consider making your donation a recurring monthly amount, and if you pledge $10 a month in support of Interchange, we can send you one of several books by Paul Buell, published by Verso. Supply is limited. Thank you for your commitment to supporting the important work of community radio. Let's return to another reading of a Debs essay. This is Joan Hawkins reading The Rights of Working Women. This is from The Rights of Working Women published in 1913 in the St. Louis Melting Pot. Cardinal James Gibbons has issued an address to women denying them the right to suffrage and warning them that they must not trench on the domain of man. Who is Cardinal Gibbons that he should presume to decide for women that they have no right to vote? and that they will incur his pious displeasure if they have the temerity to protest against being the mere property of men and to claim a voice in the government under which they live. What has Cardinal Gibbons ever done for the six million women who are working for wages in the United States that should restrain them from rebuking his impertinence? The factory owners who exploit these women to the last degree are also opposed to women's rights. And Cardinal Gibbons and the like of him are the pious agents of the working of the master class who admonish their subjects to obey their masters and be content with their lot. The working women are under no obligation to Cardinal Gibbons or any other cardinal or high priest. No cardinal has ever added a penny to a working woman's wages, or reduced her work day by a minute, or bettered her condition in the slightest degree. Why then should these women who earn their own living and support themselves allow a parasite priest who lives out of their labor and who is far more of a politician than a priest to persuade them to resign themselves meekly to their slavish lot? Cardinal Gibbons and the rest of the cardinals and archbishops live in fine residences. They have servants to wait on them 
and pass their hours in luxury and ease. They drink champagne wine, smoke the finest cigars, eat the choicest viand. And how do I know this? From the employees of establishments that furnish their tables and cellars. You working women have to be satisfied, most of you, with long hours of drudgery, with scant and coarse food, shoddy clothes, and cheap lodgings. You don't drink champagne wine, eat truffled tidbits and wear costly jewels. No, you have to work like slaves for what you get, and this will be your lot as long as you allow robed parasites to prevail upon you to think that God has commissioned them to do your thinking. Working women of America, I appeal to you to do your own thinking and to serve notice on Cardinal Gibbons and other plutocratic prelates when they have the impudence to claim the authority to speak for you and to deny you the right to vote. Tell them that you are no longer taking orders from the clerical agents of your economic masters and exploiters. descriptions in this wild world as everyone knows some are living in beautiful mansions and are wearing the finest of it's time for another break this is rebel girl written by joe hill in 1915 this is sunbolt off of their new album union stay with us for more from the pen of Terre Haute socialist giant Eugene Victor Debs but the only and thoroughbred lady is the rebel girl that's a rebel girl that's a rebel girl to the working class she's a precious pearl she brings courage and pride to the fighting rebel boy I will fight for freedom with a rebel from labor and her dress may not be very fine but a heart her body's beating that is true to her class and her kind and the grifters and the terror are troubling and her spot and defiance she'll hurl That was Sunvolt's new version of Joe Hill's 1915 classic, Rebel Girl. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Moments of Betterment, the example of Eugene V. Debs. We begin this segment with a reading of selections from Debs' essay, An Ideal Labor Press, published in May 1904 in the International Metal Worker. This is Tony Brewer. I will fight for freedom with a rebel girl. That's a rebel girl, that's a rebel girl To the working class, she's 
The primal consideration in the present industrial system is profit. All other things are secondary. Profit is the lifeblood of capital, the vital current of the capitalist system, and when it shall cease to flow, the system will be dead. The capitalist is the owner of the worker's tools. Before the latter can work, he must have access to the capitalist's toolhouse and permission to use the master's tools. What he produces with these tools belongs to the master, to whom he must sell his labor at the market price. The owner of the tools is therefore the master of the man. Only when the capitalist can extract a satisfactory profit from his labor power is the worker given a job, or allowed to work at all. Ten thousand times has the labor movement stumbled and fallen and bruised itself and risen again, been seized by the throat and choked and clubbed into insensibility, enjoined by courts, assaulted by thugs, charged by the militia, shot down by regulars, traduced by the press, frowned upon by public opinion, deceived by politicians, threatened by priests, repudiated by renegades, preyed upon by grafters, infested by spies, deserted by cowards, betrayed by traitors, bled by leeches, and sold out by leaders. But, notwithstanding all this, and all these, it is today the most vital and potential power this planet has ever known in its historic mission and its historic mission of emancipating the workers of the world from the thraldom of the ages is as certain of ultimate realization as the setting of the sun. The press is paramount to all other agencies and influences, and the progress of the press is a sure index of the progress of the movement. How thoroughly alive the capitalists are to the power of the press, and how assiduously they develop and support it, that it may in turn buttress their class interests. The press is one of the most valuable assets and, as an investment, pays the highest dividends. When there is trouble between capital and labor, the press volleys and thunders against labor and its unions and leaders and all other things that dare to breathe against the sacred rights of capital. In such a contest, labor is dumb, speechless. It has no press that reaches the public and must submit to the vilest calumny, the most outrageous misrepresentation. Every member of a trade union should feel himself obligated to do his full share in the important work of building up the press of the labor movement. He should at least support the paper of his union and one or more of the papers of his party. And above all, he should read them and school himself in the art of intelligent criticism. And let the editor hear from him when he has a criticism to offer or a suggestion to make. The working man who wants to read a labor paper with the true ring, one that ably, honestly, and fearlessly speaks for the working class, will find it safer to steer clear of those that are loaded with capitalist advertising and make his selection from those that are nearly or quite boycotted by the class that lives and thrives upon the slavery of the working class. 
The time will come when the ideal labor press will be realized, when the labor movement will command editors, writers, journalists, artists of the first class, when hundreds of papers, including dailies in the large cities, will gather the news and discuss it from the labor standpoint, when illustrated magazines and periodicals will illuminate the literature of labor and all will combine to realize our ideal labor press and bless the way for victory. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show highlights a recent Eugene B. Debs event with historian and author Paul Buell that coincided with the beginning of WFHB's Spring Fund Drive, the time of year when we turn to you for financial support. WFHB is volunteer-powered and listener-funded, which means we exist at your pleasure. Take the time to support us with your attention and money. The easiest way to do this is by going online to donate securely at WFHB.org and clicking on the red Donate button on the right side of the screen. Please consider making your donation a recurring monthly amount, and if you pledge $10 a month in support of Interchange, we can send you one of several books by Paul Buell, published by Verso. Supply is limited. Thank you for your commitment to supporting the important work of community radio. Let's return to Eric Rensberger's performance of Deb's statement to the court upon being convicted of violating the 1918 Sedition Act. Standing here this morning, I recall my boyhood. At 14, I went to work in a railroad shop. At 16, I was firing a freight engine on a railroad. I remember all the hardships and privations of that earlier day, and from that time until now, my heart has been with the working class. I could have been in Congress long ago. I have preferred to go to prison. I am thinking this morning of the men in the mills and the factories, of the men in the mines and on the railroads. I am thinking of the women who, for a paltry wage, are compelled to work out their barren lives, of the little children who, in this system, are robbed of their childhood and in their tender years are seized in the remorseless grasp of mammon and forced into the industrial dungeons there to feed the monster machines while they themselves are being starved and stunted body and soul. I see them dwarfed and diseased and their little lives broken and blasted because in this high noon of Christian civilization, money is still so much more important than the flesh and blood of childhood. In very truth, gold is God today and rules with pitiless sway in the affairs of men. In this country, the most favored beneath the bending skies, we have vast areas of the richest and most fertile soil, material resources in inexhaustible abundance, the most marvelous productive machinery on earth, and millions of eager workers ready to apply their labor to that machinery to produce in abundance for every man, woman, and child. And if 
there are still vast numbers of our people who are the victims of poverty and whose lives are an unceasing struggle all the way from youth to old age until at last death comes to their rescue and lulls these hapless victims to dreamless sleep. It is not the fault of the Almighty. It cannot be charged to nature, but it is due entirely to the outgrown social system in which we live that ought to be abolished not only in the interest of the toiling masses, but in the higher interest of all humanity. I am opposing a social order in which it is possible for one man who does absolutely nothing that is useful to amass a fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars, while millions of men and women who work all the days of their lives secure barely enough for a wretched existence. I believe, Your Honor, in common with all socialists, that this nation ought to own and control its own industries. I believe, as all socialists do, that all things that are jointly needed and used ought to be jointly owned. That industry, the basis of our social life, instead of being the private property of a few and operated for their enrichment, ought to be the common property of all democratically administered in the interests of all. It's time for our final break. This is Wilco with Christ for President. Lyrics by Woody Guthrie. When we return to Moments of Betterment, we'll hear a talk historian Paul Buell delivered in Bloomington, Indiana, about what he called utopian somethings in the work of Gene Debs, as well as the counterculture of the 1960s, and also our current moment of socialist revival. The only way they can ever beat these crooked politician men is to cast the money changers out of the temple. That was Wilco with Christ for President, lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Welcome back to Interchange and Moments of Betterment, the example of Eugene V. Debs. I'm Doug Storm. In an essay published in The Progressive Woman, Debs quotes Jesus, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And then Debs writes, This was the pith and core of all his pleading, all his preaching, and all his teaching. Love one another, be brethren, make common cause, stand together, ye who labor to enrich the parasites and are yourselves in chains, and ye shall be free. 
In our final segment, we turn again to Paul Buell, historian of the radical left, expounding the legacy of Debs to us, the necessity of the utopian in our conceptions of life together. We uh, take a risk if we talk about utopia, a very different kind of society, but it's a risk that we need to take. I'm always guilty of plugging my next book. Uh, this is one I edited. I didn't write it, and of course, I didn't draw it because I don't write it. Uh, I don't draw them. Herbert Marcuse, a philosopher of utopia, uh, drawn by uh, Nick Torkelson, uh, a very good pal and one of the very first of the underground comics artists from the 1960s. And on the cover, he has Marcuse say, we submit to the peaceful production of the means of destruction to the perfection of waste. And down below, today we have the capacity to turn the world into hell, and we are well on a way to doing so. We also have the capacity to turn it into the opposite of hell. Well, it's a, it's a book about, a very dense book about what Marcuse thought and did, and it has a foreword by Angela Davis, his best student, one might say his proudest student. So uh, let me take a moment or two to recall a great risk. Uh, utopian somethings lived in the lifetimes of those who are in our mid-70s. I mean the 1960s. In one day or one imagined day or one day in which I smoked enough dope, I thought it all happened in the same day. And this would be University of Wisconsin, where we had a lot of support uh, on campus for the anti-war movement, but scattered communities around the state who, who had opposed World War I and the Vietnam War, where we would mobilize fellow teaching assistants very successfully for the strikes that we knew were coming. We could come home, uh, uh, smoke some marijuana together, and turn on the television and see young people more or less our age demonstrating in the streets of Paris and demonstrating in the streets of Prague. I'm squeezing months together, actually all listening to the Beatles and all wearing uh, jeans, and think that the possibility of overturning this vast global system of capitalism and state capitalism was possible. We take a further risk uh, to say that uh, when we smoke dope together, a new experience outside of jazz musicians, uh, everybody got relaxed. It was a great thing to be relaxed. It's something we hadn't experienced in our life so far. We were hardworking graduate students writing our dissertations, being union members and so forth. Uh, uh, later in the day, we would, might discover by many of us that uh, the people we were with, that is uh, specifically the women we were with, in my case, wife, would uh, in the uprising of the women's liberation movement would say, these are the things about personal life, including sex, that I want. These are the things that would mean a lot to me. And when it happened, after it happened, everybody was, I'm, I'm being utopian, but life got better. Life got better because people felt differently 
about themselves and their social relations. They weren't utopian, but these were breakthroughs. These were real breakthroughs in the lives of a, of a generation of people. Uh, that doesn't happen very often in modern society, but it did happen in Debs's lifetime, the vision. When Debs was around for the founding of the industrial workers of the world, suddenly there was an idea. This is an idea that American radicals actually added to the global fund of what could be done. They called the IWW the greatest thing on earth. And why was it called that? Because the idea of uniting all workers and all unions, all purported skills, levels, anything uh, uh, across all gender, race, and all, all of the lines were part of one great body of human beings who worked. And that disregarding all of the divisions inherent in blue-collar life would join together and find a way to rebuild the economy and the world from the bottom up. They would get rid of the state as an oppressive mechanism. They would get rid of politicians as, as a repressive mechanism. And society would be governed in a democratic way, with starting with the industries and starting with the communities and working upward. And the communities that already had extensive co cooperative institutions, the Finns are a good example in the northern Midwest, they felt they were already on the way to getting there because they learned to uh, live cooperatively, to do things cooperatively, just as a sort of matter of, of socialization, of growing up as children and becoming teenagers and taking part in community theater and all these sorts of things that were there in blue-collar cultures and in some rural cultures, and we're moving towards something. Of all of the things that Debs said about the possibilities, when the mar mariner sailing over the tropic seas looks for relief from his weary watch, he turns his eyes toward the Southern Cross. As midnight approaches, the Southern Cross begins to bend. Whirling worlds change their places, and with starry fingers points the Almighty, marks the passage of time upon the dial of the universe, and though no bell may beat the uh, uh, glad tidings, the lookout knows that the midnight is passing and that relief and rest are close at hand. Yes, indeed, it seems so uh, in the early 20th century. Other people thought it was coming with the outbreak of the Russian Revolution and for a moment passing through Europe. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show highlights a recent Eugene B. Debs event with historian and author Paul Buell that coincided with the beginning of WFHB's Spring Fund Drive, the time of year when we turn to you for financial support. WFHB is volunteer-powered and listener-funded, which means we exist at your pleasure. Take the time to support us with your attention and money. The easiest way to do this is by going online to donate securely at WFHB.org and clicking on the red Donate button on the right side of the screen. Please consider making your donation a recurring monthly amount, and if you pledge $10 a month in support of Interchange, we can send you one of several books by Paul Buell, published by Verso. Supply is limited. Thank you for your commitment to supporting the important work of community radio. 
Let's return to Paul Buell on the necessity of utopian ideals to bring us a working socialism. It was more than the transformation of the economics of society. I said earlier today in, in, in Terre Haute that you can look upon Debs part of a deep kind of tradition in, in uh, Midwestern society, several different traditions, drawing upon the feeling of society changing but becoming more productive in Terre Haute and other places and seeing new new possibilities without leaving the the best of of uh, common cultures behind and at the same time uh looking ahead and seeing uh, for instance as i keep mentioning in these talks when emma goldman uh, uh the persona of another comic that i brought out not many years ago uh is hailing uh, margaret sanger uh, in a, in a socialist newspaper in New York, announcing that birth control materials and birth control methods are necessary and are available. They were readily available in France. She's instantly arrested and soon goes into exile. Among the very first to uh, acclaim the importance of this, uh, uh, along with anarchist Emma Goldman, was Eugene Debs. He said, women must have the right to birth control. This is one of the fundamental rights that brings us forward in society. He also looked forward to the transformation of racial relations. It's true that not until the rise of Harlem as a center of world black culture did socialists begin to see in black nationalism things that they hadn't seen before. But uh, Debs was a, a warm supporter of the Christian socialist. One of the very, very first uh, of the uh, organizations that uh, in this within the Socialist Party brought together uh, uh, black workers, white workers, and others in the one place they could come together in in uh, churches and prayer meetings of socialists of various kinds. Now, darn it, I've lost his quotation about John Brown, who was much despised, as you could imagine. Uh, in 19th century and early 20th century culture. But uh, Debs uh, pointed toward him and said, John Brown changed the course of the universe, a, a big statement. When Debs was languishing in a sanitarium in the early 1920s, uh, Charles Sandberg, very famous poet, sort of a radical poet, getting less radical as he became less famous, came to Debs's uh, room in the sanitarium with the uh, a young journalist, first person that ever wrote a sort of biography of Debs. And the young journalist brought with him a portrait of John Brown. And Charles Sandberg objected, saying, John Brown, he was a terrorist. And Debs said, no, no, no. John Brown pointed the, the way towards a future in which prejudice against race and the degradation of, of black people will no longer exist. That was the universality of, of Debs's vision, and it was a utopian universality. It was a vision not just better work relations, or better social relations. It was a, a, a vision of uh, transformed human relations beyond the degradation of capitalism, that much is obvious, but towards a, a, a different relation of human beings towards each other as part of a better future.
I think that's the important thing we can say about Debs today and a reason why Democratic Socialists of America have grown from 5,000 of us middle-aged people to 55,000 of mostly people under the age of 30. Not just that there are miseries under capitalism and there are miseries that are increasing under capitalism, uh, but that Bernie Sanders sees a different way or the congressperson known as AOC appears in the Chris Hayes show and she denounces the existing system most eloquently, but she's pointing towards something ahead that could be different. There are people now, more now than at any time in my mind since the late 60s and early 70s who believe that future is possible. So I say to you, look toward the socialist movement, do what you can toward the socialist movement and help, and help to restore the vision that something else is possible. Journalist in jail, covering the scenes, the profit columns rise for the corporate machines. That's our show. We'll close with another off of the new Sunvolt album, Union. This is The 99. There are a lot of people to thank for their parts in today's show, and it's possible I'm forgetting someone. Please forgive me if so. Thanks to Paul Buell, Alex Lichtenstein, Joan Hawkins, Tony Brewer, Eric Rensberger, Michael Glab, Charles Cannon, Peter Lopilato, Bella Bravo, Hugh Farrell, and Wes Martin. I'd also like to thank the Writer Magazine and Film Series, the Grant Street Inn, Blooming Foods, the Eiffel Gallery, the Debs Foundation in Terre Haute, Verso Books and PM Press, several departments at Indiana University, including Indiana Studies and Labor Studies, and the Burroughs Century. This is Community Radio. This is WFHB. You make it happen with your financial support. Donate now at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200 and show your love for us the way we show our love for you. We're all in this together. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. They can fill up the jails, but it won't make a dent. The sins don't wash away in the sea of discontent. spot at the table hopes and dreams have died the 99% have been taken for a ride and balance hangs over the 99 is down here and balance hangs over the 99 is down here 99%